Tired of paying too much for your internet? Contracts and hidden fees got you down? Tired of supporting the same big cable companies that lobby against a free and open internet? Get Monkey Brains! Monkey Brains is a local internet provider who doesn't sell your data, bind you down with contracts, or trick you with hidden monthly fees. We're honest, local, and 100% net neutral. Residential internet for only $35 a month, business packages starting at $75 a month. Go to monkeybrains.net and sign up today. Asiento, take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink, have delicious tapas and a relaxed community atmosphere. Asiento, honestly, is a wonderful place. They have incredible bartenders and board games all over the walls. Trivia on Mondays, Taco Tuesdays, First Wednesday, live jazz, live DJs Thursday, parties. The food is Darn good. Special happy hour prices all night long with your Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival ticket March 1st through 5th. Check out the schedule at www.asientosf.com. Come take a seat. I had a date there and it did not go well. But it wasn't the fault of the place. They're very nice. Asiento. to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say that they would rather switch than fight. Let's get down to business, mental self-defense of fitness. Don't rush the show. 
medicine, corporation, government, selling me some cover-up, weaponizing pesticides, poisoning my groceries, nothing but another drug, a license they can buy and sell. No, I don't mind dying.
Hey, are you tired of the media speaking? Morning, everybody. This is The Bee. And you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. Saturday morning, 10 o'clock. The time has come. Today.
Let's get the end of the Chambers Brothers. Okay, Chambers Brothers there. Chambers Brothers, 1969. The time has come today. And the time has come to listen to Mutiny Radio, specifically to the show we're presenting 
right now, Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, a negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And I say labor, I mean you. Walter P. Ruther was taken on a tour of a new Ford plant where a whole division was done by robots. And as the Ford executive walked Ruther through the factory, he pointed to the robots and he said to Ruther, how are you going to get these guys, these workers, to pay union dues? Ruther looked at him and didn't miss a beat and said, how are you going to get them to buy Fords? <laughs> the workers of the future. If we replace workers, who's going to buy all the stuff that workers make? Good question. Remember what Sophocles said. Sophocles said, Without labor, nothing prospers. So this is what we're about, labor and love. Labor opinion, labor music, labor history. What's going on? The past, present, and future of the labor movement. We started out, like I said, last one there was Time Has Come by the Chambers Brothers a band that made a huge hit with this song, Time Has Come, what's called Psychedelic Rock or Psychedelic Soul. Before that, we had Buffy St. Marie rocking with Power in the Blood. There's Power in the Blood. And before that, Fight the Power with Public Enemy. Fight the Power. I'm the B, and this is the Labor and Love Show. Welcome. What do we got today? Well, Little Rock teachers are gearing up for a strike. We've got a feature on some Indiana teachers who are thinking of the same thing as teachers revolt all over the country. And people revolt all over the world, especially lately now in Chile and in Bolivia. UAW leaders had to step down because of bribery scandals and how that hurts us in the labor movement. We're going to see a feature called The Brotherhood of Man. Well, we're going to hear a feature called The Brotherhood of Man, which was produced by one of the Hollywood Ten, written by one of the Hollywood Ten. And what is the oldest strike in history... Go back to ancient Egypt, 1,000. Is it B.C.? I don't know. We'll have to see. We're going to hear from the two Francescas. We're going to hear our radio labor feature. Iceland has made it illegal to pay women less than men. What's that about? 
The War Prayer by Mark Twain, performed by, among other people, Willie Nelson. Willie's in trouble now with the government. Who's the government back money? Some work songs from modern people. I think Elvis Costello is going to play a work song for us today. Anyway, let's take a look at the labor beat. Some compelling stories this week. As usual, if you read the news with an eye to labor or thinking from the point of view of labor, the news is full of, song, of, of stories about labor issues. Ten reasons were against unions. Now, this is, these are anti-union people, and these are their arguments, if you, if you listen. It's labeled, Workers United Against Workers Uniting. One worker says, I prefer not having power. I love bosses. Unions just want to line their own pockets. Unlike business people, unlike bosses who have only our interest at heart. Huh. Other than weekends, uh, lunch breaks, overtime pay, parental leave, uh, pension plans, higher wages and sick leave, what good have unions ever done? And there's a woman flexing her muscle, saying, I deserve to be paid less than men. There's a man with multiple injuries. He's got a hook and he's got a, an eye patch. He's missing an arm. I wouldn't want the company wasting money making my job safer. There's an intellectual saying, speaking objectively, all unions are evil. And this woman says, I want the right to work along with the right to be arbitrarily fired. I don't, I don't want to step on my boss's rights to fire me arbitrarily. Who cares if unions reduce the pay gap between non-white and white workers? Who cares? It's wrong that unions spend money influencing Congress. Only business should get to do that. Yeah, we've got too many boards and too many supervisors who are put forth by the unions and do the unions' bidding. <laughs> Companies, of course, don't hire lobbyists. It's wrong. One day I'm going to be rich and I'll be the boss and I don't want any unions in my way. Anyway, who wants more power at work, really? No. The anti-union crowd speaks up. Unionizing L.A. bus workers and their CEO come together over fighting climate change. Okay, this is on Portside. 
The city of Los Angeles has uh, a plan, a long-range plan to combat climate change, climate chaos. Okay, this is Portside. Blanchard Pinto, a supervisor on Proteras Electric Bus Assembly Line in City of Industry, right near uh, L.A., had never considered joining a union in his nine years with the company. That changed on the day before Halloween, when bosses invited him and his co-workers to a meeting with the United Steelworkers Local 675. Pinto was wary at first. In his experience working for other companies, management usually tried to avert unionization at all costs. On top of that, the majority of Local 675's existing members work at oil refineries across L.A., not exactly natural allies for Proterra, whose business model requires public transit agencies across the country to ditch fossil fuels for greener battery-powered vehicles. But steelworkers' reps convinced him that they understood the need to move to a carbon-neutral economy and were serious about helping their oil industry members survive the transition. And Proterra's Leadership seemed surprisingly amenable to the union drive. The L.A. plant voted overwhelmingly to join the steelworkers. This is my first time being in a union, and I'm actually excited about it. It was a no-brainer for me that it was something we could use for job stability. Same-day, Silicon Valley-based, venture capital-backed Proterra voluntarily recognized the union and pledged to sign a community benefits agreement which would commit the company to working with local nonprofits to hire and train workers from disadvantaged backgrounds. Okay. Check that out on Portside. The union and the company get it together for the sake of the earth. Here's a nice one. This is uh, Amazon, Jeff Bezos, now uh, number one in the world, I guess the richest man in the world. And the story says Amazon will pay zero taxes on 11 Billion two hundred million dollars profit for 2018. This is from Finance Yahoo. While some people have received some surprise tax bills when filing their returns, corporations continue to avoid paying tax thanks to a cocktail of tax credits, loopholes, and exemptions. According to a report from the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, Amazon will pay nothing in federal taxes for the second year in a row. Thanks to the new Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, Amazon's financial federal tax responsibility is 21% 
down from 35% in previous years. But with the help of tax breaks, according to corporate filings, Amazon won't be paying a dime to Uncle Sam, despite posting more than $11 billion in profit in 2018. Ah, well, there it is. Read it and weep. Where does that where does that money come from? That is money that workers made. Profit generated by the work of workers. That money will go to Jeff Bezos. Let's see what Bezos has got to say. Jeff Bezos, okay, uh, that money's going to him. It was made for him by his workers. And they're not paying any taxes at all, which means you and I have to pay taxes because he won't. He's allowed not to, and we have to. We're paying more taxes. I'm paying more income tax than Amazon. <laughs> You are too. Okay, Red Fred, a long simmering crisis of public education in Indiana. Maybe the next state where the teacher revolt will hit. Indiana is a leader among 50 states in shifting resources from public education to vouchers and charter schools. Red for Ed is a slogan that animated 15,000 teachers, students, and trade unions, unionists to attend a huge rally at the State House in Indianapolis on November 19th. 147 school districts were shut down around the state because teachers felt obliged to attend this State House rally one of the biggest ever in Indiana. Core demands involve compensation. New teachers earn just $35,000 in a state where 37% of households have earnings below a livable standard. An end to 15-hour professional training for all teachers to keep their accreditation and an end to evaluating teachers on the basis of questionable test scores of students, which obliges teachers to teach for the test rather than holistic learning. 6,000 teachers attended this meeting. This is on the Portside website. Indiana. Next, next place for the teacher revolt? We'll see. I think we read this about the Pfizer CEO got a 61% pay raise to $27.9 million as drug prices climb. What's happening here? 
What's happening? Wonder where the money is? Wonder where all that money is? Why Mutiny Radio staggers along, barely making its budget? Why hundreds of, of non-profits are struggling for every dime? <laughs> In the meantime, this guy makes $27.9 million, and Jeff Bezos' company makes... Eleven billion, and the Jamie Diamonds of this world, the uh, Lloyd Blankfeins, Blankfein worth one point three billion, are telling us we've got to tighten our belts <laughs> because they, our money is making them, our work is making them rich. No about it, doubt it. Let's see here. Let's listen to some music here. This is Elvis Costello off the 25 best work songs. Elvis Costello's first album. Thank you very much for coming. Um, we entered the world of the disabled nine and a half years ago. And once we got over the shock, I have to tell you, we've met the most remarkable people. And our life is now full of angels. And the biggest archangel of them all tonight is... Mr. Elvis Costello and Clover!
That set was, uh, well, that was Annie DeFranco with Which Side Are You On, an old labor song written by Florence Reese in 1931. Supposedly, Ms. Reese sat down and wrote the song on the back of an old calendar while uh, company goons were going through her house looking for her husband. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Another way of saying, you got to serve somebody. Another way of saying, if you don't stand up, you'll be counted that you stood up for sitting down. Okay, I want to move now to a documentary. Um, a documentary that was made right after World War II and um, in our history of California labor, we're talking about the period right after World War II. Now, the real war criminals in World War II were the big capitalists who made money off the war but who also did business with Hitler, did business with Germany, as a matter of fact, one company, one U.S. company, claimed and received damages because some of their factories in Germany had been destroyed by Allied bombing. <laughs> These were the war criminals. The war criminal who traded with Francisco Franco who, who supplied the loyalists with oil, the fascists, that is, with oil. The loyalists, while the loyalists were unable to buy oil from anybody, nobody would help them except the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union's help came with strings attached. You had to follow the party line. Or, in some cases, they would assassinate you. In any case, right after World War II, the offensive was not against those people, Prescott Bush's, Henry Ford's, who traded and aided Germany, IBM. It was against intellectuals and cultural figures on the left who had joined in the 30s, joined the Communist Party or worked with people in the Communist Party to bring social justice to the United States. Some of the very best organizers in the labor movement, people who took on racial injustice and poverty, people who worked on the... Uh, unemployed councils, people who inspired others to break the locks when landlords came and, and took back property from working people. These people, people who wrote about you know, society, making society better. So these people were painted as the villains in what was called the McCarthy era, okay, by Joe McCarthy. 
And this is called The Brotherhood of Man. And it was written by one of 10 blacklisted writers, writers who were uh, frozen out of the Hollywood uh, establishment by people like Ward Bond, for example, who reported them and said any kind of move towards, uh, you know, any kind of mention of these positive goals for society was communism. Okay, this is it, the Brotherhood of Man, 1946. Made by the United Auto Workers of the uh, CIO. This is what unions business should be. Building a better society. Everybody has his own special dream of what the world's going to be like in the future. But we all know it's steadily shrinking. One of these days, we're going to wake up and find that people and places we used to just read about are practically in our own backyard. going out to meet the new reality. Civilization depends on brotherhood. As the people try to unite and shake hands. Shadows pull them back, the shadow of prejudice. 
a minute. What about this business of brotherhood? We're all different. Are you? Let's take a look at the facts, right from the start. The first people on Earth knew only a very small section of it. They lived close together and looked alike. But pretty soon, they started to spread out. And as they drifted further apart, little differences began to appear. Most of the people of the world kept the same in-between color as their ancestors, and still do. But three groups on the very edges of the world population developed distinct differences in color. These exceptional groups gave rise to our idea of three separate races of mankind. Well, there are other differences in people besides a skin color. Yes, you find all sorts of hair, eyes, nose shapes, and sizes. But you find these same differences within each group. It's only color and a few other frills that distinguish our three races. The Caucasian, the Negroid, and the Mongoloid. For example, there is no difference in physical strength. Sure, but... What about... Brains! There are some variations. For instance, there's a difference of about 50 cubic centimeters in the size of the brain of the average American Negro and the brain of the average American White, both of which are smaller than the brain of the average Eskimo. And the largest brain on record was that of an imbecile. So it isn't the size of a brain that counts, it's what it can do. And their tests have shown that our three average men are equal. If you take their skins off, there's no way to tell them apart. The heart, liver, lungs, blood, everything's the same. Uh, everything's the same. Heart, liver, lungs, blood. No, not blood. Blood's different. Well, there are four different types of blood. A, B, AB, and O. Patient in room 216 needs a transfusion right away. I'll give it to him. I'm his brother. He's dead! Yes, but he wouldn't be if we'd been more scientific about it. Brother or no brother, what he needs is type A. And the right blood donor for him could belong to any race, since the four blood types appear in all races. Say, we're not really so different at all. Like you say, it's, it's just the frills. Only, wait a minute. I, I got a question. 
how come we live like this? And, uh... It wasn't always that way. For instance, at a stage of history, when the so-called pure whites of Northern Europe were little better than savages, the darker-skinned mixed peoples of the Near East and Africa had flourishing cultures. And the great civilization of Northern China had begun to develop. All peoples contributed to civilization, reaching high levels at different times, and each learning from the experience of the other. certain basic ideas which were common to all branches of the human race. Belief in a supreme being, in the home, and the family. How civilized a person is depends on the surroundings in which he grows up. The differences in the way people behave are not inherited from their ancestors. They come from something called cultural experience or environment. Suppose you could somehow switch two newborn infants from entirely different backgrounds. They would not inherit their real parents' cultural experience or ideas or mechanical aptitudes. Those are things you acquire. Got a match, bud? Not come yet morning for chai. I get it. But now that we're living so close together, we can get used to each other's ways and work together peacefully. All we need is a little real understanding and what I said before, brotherhood. Right. And we have to put those ideas into practice in certain very specific ways. We have to see to it that there's equal opportunity for everyone from the very beginning. An equal start in life. Equal chance for health and medical care. And a good education. An equal chance for a job. Then we can all go forward together. It was called the Brotherhood of Man. <clears throat> it was uh, written by Ring Lardner Jr., one of the blacklisted Hollywood writers, and um, produced by the F, uh, United Auto Workers of the CIO, um, reflecting another side of American culture after World War II. America right away got involved in a war, a cold war though, but still a war that took enormous amounts of money 
that could have been spent on making the world better for everybody, making life better for everybody. The Brotherhood of Man. Uh, later on today, we'll continue with our history of California labor uh, about this time when the uh, powers of the rich and the uh, corporate power slammed the door on people's hopes after World War II, after working people went and fought World War II to save the right of the United Fruit Company, for example, to go into Guatemala and overthrow a duly elected government. This is what ultimately some of what, what the fighting in World War II got it saved capitalism, um, strengthened it. You know, instead of sharing power with those who'd fought the war, the powers that be, the commercial powers, the corporate powers, immediately jumped, jumped in and had laws passed that enhanced their power over working people and that weakened Unions. Like let's let's listen to one of our Francescas now talking about socialism. Socialism was the hope of a lot of people at this time. Remains the hope of a lot of people, and now has moved to center stage in American politics with the ascent of uh, Bernie. Bernie calls himself a democratic socialist. Here's Francesca. Our chupacabra, our candy man. Say it three times into a mirror and your kid goes to college for free. Americans are so used to demonizing socialism that most don't really know what it is, or they're shy to admit that they're curious about it. Like how most adults are afraid to watch the Twilight series because what if they discover they're totally on Team Edward? But thanks to a 76-year-old self-described democratic socialist and now a whole host of candidates running openly as socialists, maybe it's time to understand it. We're looking at some of the biggest myths told about the S-word. Hit it, Kate! We've all heard socialism described by the right. You wait in lines for hours, you eat what little nutrients are available, and everyone wears the same thing. Why does socialism sound a lot like Disneyland? Socialism is a favorite straw man of the right, used to disparage any candidate that mentions anything that resembles something like generosity, whether it's Barack Obama or Bernie Sanders. And instead of including socialist voices on television to clarify, they actually have segments like this. I gotta go to the liberal panel. It's gotta be tough for you to look at uh, your candidates and see how boring and stiff they are. They're stiffer than you. Well, they are. Well, thanks a lot. But they did talk about policy, unlike the Republican debates, and it's not socialism, it's capitalism, it's democratic socialism within a capitalist society. You wanna talk about giving stuff away? Yeah. It's giving stuff, what Republicans do is give stuff to the top 1%. Is Social Security socialism? Medicare socialism? Yes. Medicaid socialism? Yes. You wanna take all that away? I do. I, I want to take all of people. it away. See you how that stupid works panel. campaign. I want to take it all away. I don't want the government taking my money. I can spend it better than they can, and I can't believe I'm yelling at you and again. You're oh, my God. 
Greg Gutfeld just lost an argument to an animatronic gag he scripted to make himself look smarter. That's like getting your ass kicked by a punching bag. Seriously though, there are many different definitions of socialism depending on who you ask. And just because a country has socialist policies doesn't mean it's a socialist country. There are degrees of socialism. So let's just start out with a safe Wikipedia description. Socialism is a range of economic and social systems characterized by social ownership and democratic control of the means of production. That sounds pretty harmless, and yet, of course, that's what a collectively edited, nonprofit, free encyclopedia would say. And look how that turned out. Oh, pretty good. You can think about socialism as democracy for the economy, an economy that takes planning and forethought and doesn't just leave wealth distribution to the invisible hand of the market, which, in case you were wondering, looks like this for the 99% of us. And yet, instead of having an honest conversation about what a more democratic economy could look like in a country with the worst income inequality since before the Great Depression, we hear this. Listen up, all you Bernie Sanders supporters. We'll say it again. Socialism doesn't work. Socialism keeps failing. This is Socialism 101. We've seen it fail over and over again. It's failing now because of problems inherent to socialism. Myth number one. Socialism's been attempted and failed. But has it truly? Critics point to examples of leaders who took a twisted version of Marxism and implemented it to the extreme, like Pol Pot of Cambodia or Stalin's Soviet Union. But those are better examples of totalitarianism than anything else. As Noam Chomsky, linguist and man who lost award for most desirable lefty grandpa to a younger, hotter Jew put it, the Soviet Union wasn't actually socialist. He says Russia called itself that to trick those sympathetic to socialism, and the US did the same to make people more afraid of socialism. The core notion of at least traditional socialism is that uh, what you mentioned, that working people have to be in control of production. The Soviet Union is the exact opposite of that. Uh, working people had no control over anything. They were uh, virtual slaves. Also, why judge an ideology on its most extreme examples? That's like judging a love of baseball by the Red Sox fan who carved red socks into his forehead with a broken Miller Lite. Loving baseball is the least of his problems. Funny enough though, even baseball isn't safe from the myth that socialism has failed. Listen to this announcer calling a Dodgers game suddenly go off on socialism when a Venezuelan player steps up to bat. Socialism failing to work as it always does, this time in Venezuela. You talk about giving everybody something free and all of a sudden there's no food to eat. Anyway, 0-2. Oh my God, I truly hope that somewhere out there there is a Spanish language announcer mentioning the failures of capitalism when calling an American soccer game. Bueno, son malos porque no hay dinero en el fútbol. No es como el fútbol americano donde hay muchos momentos para publicidades. El capitalismo vence al deporte. Piénsenlo, cero a dos. Yes, Venezuela is going through an insane political crisis right now, but it's not clear that that crisis has anything to do with their socialist policies. And since that would take another 10 minutes to break down, instead, we threw a couple of links to articles below for you to read. Yes, read. 
But what we never hear when discussing Venezuela is how putting their nationalized oil money into social programs led to a dramatic reduction in poverty and an increase in literacy. And how about Cuba? Has socialism failed there? Cuba is not a democracy, for sure, but it also has the highest literacy rate in all of Latin America, not to mention free healthcare and free higher education. And now they're developing a lung cancer vaccine, and that means they'll be able to safely smoke all the cigars that we can't even import. Instead, we've been left with vaping, which is somehow less cool than cancer. Another myth we hear is that socialism is too expensive. But too expensive for who? In France, the government covers all or pays back at least 70% of healthcare costs, which meant a lot when this couple had twins. Even though the boys were delivered by cesarean section and Nomi spent nine days in a private room, leaving the hospital, they paid 19 euros. 19 euros. Coincidentally, the dollar price of an Uber ride to the ER in the US to avoid going into debt over an ambulance ride. Compare that French experience to an American couple who went bankrupt after also having twins who were premature. It was 2.2 million. Oh, we lost everything. We paid every bill we could. We sold everything we could. We sold our car. We sold our furniture. We sold our clothing. We liquidated our 401ks. We got, we, I mean, we sold everything. Jesus. But you might be thinking, well, France spends more money on healthcare, and you would be wrong. Uh, France spends 11% of its GDP, and the US spends 17.2% of our GDP on healthcare. And France is consistently ranked as having one of the best healthcare systems in the world, while we clock in last when compared to the 10 most developed countries. But on the bright side, Trump is working hard to make us not a developed country. So what about students? Is socialism too expensive for them? Because in many countries around the world, university tuition is essentially free. In Germany, it's even free for foreigners to benefit from, like Americans. I had heard things like I'd be able to drink, I'd have health care. Each month it cost about 600 euro to live here. My room, train tickets, school, food. My main motivation, of course, was saving money. Was it? Because I'm pretty sure the first thing you said was you'd be able to drink. So I think that's where your money's going to be going. Ah, oh, you can take a boy out of South Carolina, but you can't take a tall boy out of his hand. Germany doesn't see free college as a drain on the economy, but believes that investing in young people's education, even that of non-Germans, will benefit the German economy in the long run. Compare that to how we pay for school in the United States, which is basically an F-U-I-O-U, as student debt just hit $1.5 trillion. Though to be fair, student debt is a job creator for student debt collectors. Germany's example flies in the face of another myth spouted about socialist policies, that they're not good for business. They stifle innovation and competition, and heavy regulations and taxes only make companies move abroad. Work for less, Bangladesh. But take Denmark. The government spends a lot on job training and education, especially for the unemployed. And Danish companies participate in these programs because it means they have a stronger workforce. So when Danes get laid off, they get help learning a new skill that isn't putting together IKEA furniture for strangers. Mostly because they hate the Swedes. In 2015, Denmark was ranked by Forbes as being the best country for business and is consistently ranked as the happiest country on earth, something Fox News blowhards like Bill O'Reilly desperately try to find a way to undermine. When I heard the Danes were the happiest people on earth, I thought back to my ancestors in Ireland who were beheaded and raped by the Danish Vikings. <laughs> and I don't know if that was a happy experience. I mean 
Yeah, Bill, way to dunk on the libs by bringing up an unrelated grudge you've been carrying with you since the year 800. Later in the same conversation, the intrepid reporters hit on another myth about socialism. The it'll never work in America myth. There are five and a half million Danes. Right. And that's it. We have 300 million people here, Bill. Okay, this myth I really don't understand the logic of. If there are more people paying more taxes into a social welfare state, doesn't that mean more money? What, suddenly Americans don't know how to scale up? We gave the world Starbucks, Walmart, and King Kong. We're all about scaling up. Another myth about socialism is that it requires big government, and that government is not democratic. But look at Norway, a country whose economic model has been called a 21st century version of socialism, and has also been ranked as the world's best democracy. After the global financial crisis of 2008, Norway decided not to tighten its purse strings. Instead, under a socialist finance minister, federal control of financial assets in sectors like oil expanded, and the government directed that money into their sovereign wealth fund, or national bank, which is part of the reason Norwegians enjoy benefits like universal health care, education, guaranteed parental leave, and oh yeah, no national debt. As far as democracy goes, Norwegians are automatically registered to vote, and 78% did in the last election, compared to our 55% in the last election. Not that the stakes were high. <sighs> Norway has nine parties instead of our two, a parliamentary system of proportional representation instead of our winner-take-all system, and Norwegians have reindeer. Can we have nothing? When all of the myths above fail them, conservatives always resort to a final myth about socialism, which is capitalism is better. Die-hard capitalists insist there is no alternative to their system. Sure, it's claimed as many, if not more, lives than socialism, from colonialism to rampant poverty caused by neoliberal economics to, oh yeah, the millions who died in wars fought to preserve its dominance, capitalism is still better. Just watch how economist Milton Friedman, the Bunsen of free enterprise, defended his ideology in an interview with a barrage of whataboutisms. But it seems to reward not virtue as much as ability to manipulate the system. Uh, and what does reward virtue? You think the uh, communist commissar rewards virtue? You know, I think you're taking a lot of things for granted. And just tell me where in the world you find these angels who are going to organize society for us. In Norway, we've been over this. They're with the reindeer. But if that kind of cynicism is what defends unfettered capitalism, maybe we should rethink it. But listen, I am happy to be proven wrong, which is why I'm going to consult my conservative panel. Hey, conservative panel, what do you think about all these socialist myths? What the, what, they're not myths. They're not myths at all. Generosity is evil. If you give people free handouts, they're gonna have to eat rats out of buckets. And don't ask me to link cause and effect. Cause and effect is fake news. Okay, okay, listen, conservative panel, I know you're confused and angry because things aren't always black or white. History is fluid, and your president is going down in a fiery ball of lies. But maybe keep an open mind about socialism. Capitalism is built on greed, which, as it turns out, is not best for either people or or business, or the planet. Maybe capitalism could use some socialism. Americans are innovative and hopeful, so maybe the world has yet to see the best of socialism, and even capitalism. Um, actually, Jesus turned the other cheek to ignore a homeless person. <sighs> Thanks once again for watching News Broke. If you haven't heard, this is our third to last video, which is oh so sad, but guess what? 
We've got two years, two years of videos every single week. So I don't want to see the tears unless you've seen all the two years. You know what I'm saying? We're going to miss this. We're going to miss you. But thank you so much for supporting. Still subscribe. You know, who knows? We might come back someday. Follow me on Twitter at Franny Fio. Follow the entire team at Franny Fio. And we will see you next week. Francesca Fiorentini there with uh, her rundown on socialism and the sort of common sense Stokely Carmichael, uh, Kwame Nure, once said, yeah, that he wasn't worried about the future of socialism because socialism is just common sense. The people who do the work should control, have some voice in control of how the money is spent that they produce. Um, they should own the means of production. What is capitalist ownership anyway? I want to play this one, History in Two Minutes. On this day in labor history, we go way, way back to 1170 B.C., one of the first ever recorded strikes. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, and we're going way, way, way back. The year was 1170 BC, so the exact date is a bit of an estimate. Egyptian workers initiated what just might be the first recorded strike in world history. The workers were toiling on public works projects, including building tombs of the pharaohs in the Valley of the Kings. They stopped working to protest having gone 20 days without pay. Their payment was portions of grain. While we don't know many of the details about this early work action, it is in inspiring to think that as far back as ancient Egypt, workers were already uniting to better their working conditions. 20th century American activist Anne Louise Strong wrote the following short verse. They say the pharaohs built the pyramids. Do you think one pharaoh dropped one bead of sweat? We built the pyramids for the pharaohs and we're building for them yet. In the centuries that have followed, work and labor organizing have changed along with industrialization and technology. But through these changes, there stands that spirit of workers' solidarity. People's musician Woody Guthrie famously sang, oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. Those craftsmen in Egypt did not have labor unions as we think of them today, but they did stick together in order to stand up to unfair bosses. Whether it's work at a factory, on a farm, in an office, or even on the pyramids, workers united together are a force to be reckoned with. Walk like an Egyptian. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith. And
church burned down
The long-haired preachers come out every night I try to tell you what's wrong and what's right But when asked about something to eat uh, They will answer in voices so sweet You will eat, you will eat by and by In that glorious land in the sky Way up high, work and pray Live on hay uh, You get by in the sky when you die That's the lie the starvation army they play And they shout and they clap and they pray uh, When they got all your coins on the drum uh, They will tell you when you're on the bomb You will eat, you will eat by and by In that glorious land in the sky Way up high, work and pray uh, Live on hay uh, you get by in the sky when you die, that's a lie. Holy rollers and jumpers come out. And they roll and they jump and they shout. I give your money to Jesus, they say. And you lead on that glorious day. Uh, you will eat, you will eat by and by. Side by side, we for freedom will fight. Uh, when this world and its wealth we have gained, uh, back to the crackers will sing this refrain. You and me, we by and by. Uh, when you learn how to cook and how to fry, uh, chop some wood, do you good. That's it. We had uh, just now The Preacher and the Slave, famous song by Joe Hill, about how we're told that uh, we'll get our just dessert in heaven, not here on earth. Maybe things here on earth aren't so good, but never mind about that. Don't do anything about it. The good things will come after you die. And if you believe that, <laughs> well, as George Carlin said, people talk about the American dream. The reason they call it the American dream is because you got to be asleep to believe it. You will eat by and by in that glorious land in the sky. Before that, rivers of Babylon, the Melodians, one of the first big reggae hits. To, uh, and, of course, reggae is inextricably tied to social justice. Before that, we had the church burned down. And uh, I can't remember the name. We'll have to pick up that name for you and let you know about that. Right now, I want to play something by Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson and a group of people that he was associated with, and it's called the War Prayer. 
Now, the War Prayer was originally written by Mark Twain in 1898. At that time, uh, the country, as it does from time to time, more and more often, <laughs> goes to fight imperialist war. And in order to get the people to go along and actually fight the war and risk them their lives to fight, in order to get people to ignore the fact that a lot of those people aren't coming back, they raise the issues of patriotism, fight for your country. Uh, Twain was, did not buy into that. Twain saw the, the thrust of the United States uh, empire uh, into places like Cuba and the Caribbean and South America and the Philippines and Hawaii and on and on as betrayals of basic humanity and, and uh, progressive ideal. The U.S. was saying that it's going to save these little brown brothers, but Twain had a different idea. So here's Willie Nelson and his group doing the war prayer. It was a time of great and exalting excitement. The country was up in arms. The war was on. In every breast burned the holy fire of patriotism. The drums were beating, the bands playing, the toy pistols popping, the bunched firecrackers hissing and spluttering. On every hand, and far down the receding fading spread of roofs and balconies, a fluttering wilderness of flags flashed in the sun. Daily, the young volunteers marched down the wide avenue, gay and fine in their new uniforms. The proud fathers and mothers and sisters and sweethearts cheering them, with voices choked with happy emotion as they swung by. Nightly, the packed meetings listened, panting, to a patriot oratory which stirred the deepest deeps of their hearts, in which they interrupted at briefest intervals with cyclones of applause, the tears running down their cheeks the while. In the churches, the pastors preached devotion to flag and country and invoked the God of battles, beseeching his aid in our good cause in the outpouring of fervent eloquence which moved every listener. It was indeed a glad and gracious time, and the half-dozen rash spirits that ventured to disapprove of the war and cast a doubt upon its righteousness straight away got such a stern and angry warning that for their personal safety's sake they quickly shrank out of sight and offended no more in that way. Sunday morning came. Next day the battalions would leave for the front. The church was filled. The volunteers were there. Their young faces alight with martial dreams. Visions of the stern advance, the gathering momentum, the rushing charge, the flashing sabers, the flight of the foe, the tumult the enveloping smoke, the fierce pursuit, the surrender. Then home from the war, bronzed heroes, welcomed, adored, submerged in golden seas of glory, with the volunteers set their dear ones, proud, happy, and envied by the neighbors and friends who had no sons and brothers to send forth to the field of honor, there to win for the flag, or failing, die the noblest of noble deaths. The service proceeded. A war chapter from the Old Testament was read, and the first prayer was said. 
and it was followed by an organ burst that shook the building, and with one impulse the house rose, and with glowing eyes and beating hearts poured out that tremendous invocation. God the all-terrible, thou who ordainest thunder thy clarion, enlightening thy sword. And then came the long prayer. None could remember the like of it for passionate pleading and moving and beautiful language. The burden of its supplication was that an ever-merciful and benignant father of us all would watch over our noble young soldiers and aid, comfort, and encourage them in their patriotic work. Bless them, shield them in the day of battle, in the hour of peril, bear them in his mighty hand, make them strong and confident, invincible in the bloody onset, help them to crush the foe, Grant to them and to their flag and country imperishable honor and glory. An aged stranger entered and moved with slow and noiseless step up the main aisle, his eyes fixed upon the minister, his long body clothed in a robe that reached to his feet, his head bare, his white hair descending in a frothy cataract to his shoulders, his seamy face unnaturally pale, pale even to ghastliness. And with all eyes following him and wondering, he made his silent way. Without pausing, he ascended to the preacher's side and stood there waiting. With shut lids, the preacher, unconscious of his presence, continued his moving prayer, and at last finished it with the words uttered in fervent appeal. Bless our arms, grant us the victory, O Lord our God, Father and protector of our land and flag. The stranger touched his arm, motioned him to step aside, which the startled minister did, and took his place. During some moments he surveyed the spellbound audience with solemn eyes, in which burned an uncanny light. Then, in a deep voice, he said, I come from the throne, bearing a message from Almighty God. The word smote the house with a shock. If the stranger perceived it, he gave no attention. He has heard the prayer of his servant, your shepherd and will grant it if such shall be your desire, after I, his messenger, shall have explained to you its import, that is to say, its full import. For it is like unto many of the prayers of men, in that it asks for more than he who utters it is aware of, except he pause and think. God's servant and yours has prayed his prayer. Has he paused and taken thought? Is it one prayer? No, it is two. One uttered, the other not. Both have reached the ear of him who heareth all supplications, the spoken and the unspoken. Ponder this, keep it in mind. If you would beseech a blessing upon yourself, beware, lest without intent you invoke a curse upon a neighbor at the same time. If you pray for the blessing of rain upon your crop which needs it, by that act you are possibly praying for a curse upon some neighbor's crop which may not need rain, and can be injured by it. You have heard your servant's prayer, the uttered part of it. I am commissioned of God to put into words the other part of it, that part which the pastor, and also you in your hearts, fervently prayed, silently, and ignorantly and unthinkingly. God grant that it was so. You heard these words, Grant us the victory, O Lord, our God. That is sufficient. The whole of the uttered prayer is compact into those pregnant words. Elaborations were not necessary. 
When you have prayed for victory, you have prayed for many unmentioned results which follow victory, must follow it, cannot help but follow it. Upon the listening spirit of God the Father fell also the unspoken part of the prayer. He commandeth me to put it into words. Listen. O Lord, our Father, our young patriots, idols of our hearts, go forth to battle. Be thou near them. With them, in spirit, we also go forth from the sweet peace of our beloved firesides to smite the foe. O Lord, our God, help us to tear their soldiers to bloody shreds with our shells. Help us to cover their smiling fields with the pale forms of their patriot dead. Help us to drown the thunder of the guns with the shrieks of their wounded, writhing in pain. Help us to lay waste their humble homes with a hurricane of fire. Help us to wring the hearts of their unoffending widows with unavailing grief. Help us to turn them out roofless with their little children to wander unfriended the wastes of their desolated land in rags and hunger and thirst. Sports of the sun flames of summer and the icy winds of winter broken in spirit, worn with travail, imploring thee for the refuge of the grave, and denied it. For our sakes who adore thee, Lord, blast their hopes, blight their lives, protract their bitter pilgrimage, make heavy their steps, water their way with their tears, stain the white snow with the blood of their wounded feet. We ask it in the spirit of love, of him who is the source of love, and who is the ever-faithful refuge and friend of all that are sore beset, and seek his aid with humble and contrite hearts. Amen. Ye have prayed it. If ye still desire it, speak. The messenger of the Most High waits. It was believed afterward that the man was a lunatic, because there was no sense in what he said. That was a war prayer by Mark Twain uh, expressing the reality of what happens when we pray for our side to win. We pray for other people to suffer. That's war. Okay, we usually play a radio labor segment, but... Uh, Looks like we've not time for that. Let's look at uh, Decoded. Why is legal immigration to the U.S. almost impossible? Okay, we're talking about how hard it is to get into the Stop US. me if you've heard this before. A foreigner moves to America, no wait, he applies for a green card to move to America, and then that takes two or four years, so we've got some time before I get to the punchline. The immigration debate isn't exactly a new conversation in America, but lately that debate has gotten even more heated, what with talk of travel bans and multi-billion dollar border walls. Lots of people have their own ideas about the solution to the so-called illegal immigrant problem, but few realize or care how the immigration process in America actually works. Spoiler alert! 
it doesn't work. For those who aren't in the know, why can't they just get in line to come here legally? Seems like a pretty reasonable question. But this isn't the old timey days when 98% of people who showed up to Ellis Island were let into the country. Today, America's immigration process is super long and super expensive. Follow me, if you will, through the hellish landscape that is green card land. It's like Candyland, only way more depressing. So you wanna live and work in America. There are several ways to achieve this, and none of them are easy or necessarily guaranteed to make you a citizen. First, you've gotta figure out what kind of tedious application journey you're about to embark on. Let's talk about a few. If you're from a country with a low immigration rate, you could apply for the green card lottery, in which over 11 million people worldwide each year apply for only 50,000 available visas. Gotta love those less than 0.5% odds. But for argument's sake, let's say you apply for the lottery and don't win. You could file an employment-based application. All you need is an eligible employer in the United States to sponsor you and pay for the application process and prove you're not taking away a valuable job from a US citizen. Don't worry, this will only take like a year to get approved by the Labor Department if you have a master's or PhD, and only two to five years if you don't. Plus, you have to be outside the US if you don't have lawful status. And on top of that, you haven't even applied for the actual visa yet. Isn't waiting for years on slim hopes the best? But if you're really special, you can apply for a shiny EB-1 visa. That's for aliens of extraordinary ability. Basically, anyone who's managed to excel in the arts, business, academia, or athletics, and fits at least three of 10 special, special people requirements, or they've made a cool one-time achievement like winning a Pulitzer, an Oscar, or an Olympic medal. What, you don't have a Pulitzer? Let's say maybe the employer thing didn't work and your Pulitzer was lost in the mail. Well, you could have a family member petition for you, if they're already living in the United States legally. If you're flying solo, your last option is to find a spouse. Just be prepared to prove it's real. Contrary to every 90s sitcom sham green card marriage plot, the whole process doesn't take place in 30 hilarious minutes, but over the course of several months to a year. And you may even have to prove it again two years later if you haven't been married that long. But if you don't have an American Bay? Well, bye. Did I mention the cost of all of this? Because no matter what application you file, it's going to be a pretty penny. A standard green card application costs $1,760, and a lawyer to walk you through the filing process can run you anywhere from $500 to $10,000, depending on how complicated your case is going to be. Plus, there are literally hundreds of different forms that you may have to file, and all of them will cost something. You'll be shelling out money on fees to the government, lawyers, passport photos, biometrics, mailing costs, and so on, all while trying to, you know, live your life. All right, so let's say you've managed to raise the money to pay all the fees and maybe get a decent lawyer. You've gathered all the necessary documents and filled out your applications to the best of your ability. Good job on answering no to are you a terrorist? You win, right? You've reached Green Card Castle. <laughs> no. The Department of Homeland Security, which now manages immigration, is notorious for its backlogged, outdated system. An application can get rejected for all kinds of reasons. Maybe your passport photos aren't the right size, or you forgot to check a box on page 19. And even if your application is perfect, you can wait up to four years for a response, and in some cases, even 10. Plus, if you're rejected after all this, you could face deportation or go back to start in this long and costly green card land adventure. Look, America is a country of immigrants, except Native Americans, of course, 
and African Americans who were, you know, brought here against their will. Obviously, undocumented immigration is a complex issue, which means there's no easy solution. But maybe before building a wall or issuing highly specific travel bans, we should focus on building a better system for welcoming new folks in. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time right here on Decoded. Decoded giving us the skinny on why don't people just get in line and go through the legal processes? Well, that's easier said than done. Time to go. This is labor and love. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. The long-haired preachers come out every night. Remember, if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table. But when asked about You're on the menu, you and never, but I never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Remember, with Sophocles we say, without labor nothing prospers. Hello to everybody. See you next week, labor and love. And they shout and they clap and they pray uh, when they got all your coins on the drum. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Davis, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834.
Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch Apply now for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2020 coming up March 1st through 7th, 2020. But you can apply now through November 30th. 50 shows in seven days, over 50 comics from all around the U.S., and you could be one of them. Go to the Mutiny Radio website, www.mutinyradio.fm. Click the Apply button. Pay that 20 bucks. Donate to Mutiny Radio and apply with your five-minute video to the Mutiny Radio 5th Annual Comedy Festival coming up March 1st through 7th, 2020. Submissions close November 30th. Get those submissions in now. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shit. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8 that's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counteroffer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. 
Counter Offers menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offers serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. If not line comedy, the small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly sports, vinyl, the gutter pump, MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. 